All right, as those offering baskets are being passed, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, just going to give you a, a little um, kind of look back and then look forward as where we've been, where we're heading. Uh, we have already covered Genesis 1 and 2. In the last few weeks, we actually did sort of a mini-series Pastor Paul did. would highly commend it to you if you missed any of those sermons on marriage. And marriage in light of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And then starting today, we're actually going to look back at Genesis 3 again. But we're going to kind of take a slow um, move through chapter 3 and, and continue on for the next while. Um, and, but this time the lens is more seeing Genesis 3 through the lens of the fall and temptation and giving in and the curse and all of that good stuff. And so uh, you should have gotten one of these on the way in. This is a little guide that we put together every four to six weeks. Um, it's got study questions in there. It's got community group questions. It's got some resources that you can read. Uh, you're gonna, if you read through this, though, you're going to be a little bit confused by today. Uh, actually, East and Midtown, they're taking three weeks on Genesis 3, 1 through 13. We're doing it all today, buddy. All right, so we're going to jump in, uh, and then we'll be back on track with this book uh, starting next week. So this is for you guys to check out. All right, before we jump into Genesis 3, uh, if you guys did notice, I was walking up a little bit slowly this morning, got this fancy shoe on, and I uh, figured I'd tell you a little bit about it. So last weekend, uh, actually last Saturday, I was, was um, spending some time with Josiah and Ruthann, and they wanted to run. Well, the reason why they wanted to run is because I have an incentive for them to run. I gave uh, Josiah and Ruthann a goal to meet way back in December. Josiah met that goal. Ruthann didn't quite meet that goal, and she actually gave up. But because of soccer this past spring, she was excited, and so she's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this goal. And so we ran a few days earlier, and I was like, you're almost there, Ruthann. And so Saturday was the day. I was like, yes, this is going to be the day, Ruthann. You're going to beat your goal. But because I can't run, if you guys don't know this, I, have a, I had a back surgery, and so I can't run, but I can ride my bike. And so I was like, I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going I'm to have my phone right here. I'm going to time you, and we're going to cheer you on the whole way. And so Josiah and Ruthann, they're, they're, on, they're starting with a good speed. They get around the corner, and then we're around our neighborhood. It's about a, about a half a mile. And so on the two-thirds of the way, I'm like, Ruthann, you're going to beat your time because the next part is this hill that you get to go fast down. And so only problem is if you're on a bike, you get a phone, and you're looking at your kids while you're braking with the front brakes, which I shouldn't have done, it doesn't go well. And so I like flipped over my bike, scuffed my hands, my shoulder, and then my toe really hurt. And, uh, and so, I, man, I'm hurting. But the, but the thing was, Ruthann, don't stop. Keep going. You got to beat your time. And so Josiah, he kind of helps me out. And then I like lumber down the hill as fast as I can to kind of cheer her on. And we get around the corner to where the house is, and I see her running, and I'm like, you can do it. And so we're cheering for her, 10, 9, 8. And she crosses the mailbox just at zero. We're like, yeah, go, Ruthann. But of course, I am hurting. And so I have to hobble back up the, the hill, grab my bag, and then walk back down. And then as I'm walking down, Abigail greets me, and she's like, what happened? What happened? And so she wants to be a nurse. She's an awesome nurse, by the way. She took good care of me, went into the house. But Julia and Hannah, they were running errands. And so they came in afterwards. And then everybody wants to tell the story, right? Ruthann's like, I beat my time. And Josiah's like, it was crazy. 
And then Abby goes like, look at what I did. How I cheered up and helped my daddy. And Julia, all she wants to do is like, she says, slow down. And then she looks at me right now. She's like, Scott, how is your back? That's what she was most concerned about. And of course, I was like, actually, my back's fine. My toe really hurts. And, uh, and so anyway, the reason why I share that story is because I want us this morning to slow down. I want us to, I want us to, to really read Genesis 1 through 13 and not speed pass through it. I want us to really see and observe and think and meditate on what is happening in this story. And if you're like me too, when you tell, this, when you tell a story, so like if people are asking me about my foot, I, I tell the story over and over again, and then I, I just kind of gloss over some of the details. I don't have near as much emotion as I'm telling the story. And sometimes, and, and I think I, I certainly have been guilty of this, particularly as I'm looking at this text, and I'm just like, man, that's a, uh, I, I kind of know that story. And you just gloss over the details. Yeah, Adam and Eve sinned. It's sad. We live on this side of the fall. But this is the fall. This is the, that mankind fell from perfect relationship with God. And as I've slowed down and meditated on this passage, I've cried. I think about Adam and Eve and their sin, and then I think about my own sin. I'm not necessarily asking you to cry today, but I want for you and me to really watch, to listen, to learn, to meditate, to, to think on, to slow down, and to feel the weight of the fall of mankind. And like any good story, uh, we're going to kind of picture this almost like a play or a drama on stage. We've already covered Act 1. So if you remember, we've covered that the last several months. Uh, God displays his power, his majesty, his creative genius as he speaks everything into existence. We see the wonder and the joy of man and woman as they've been created in the image of God to work and to rest and to commune with one another and with all of creation and with God himself. There's no sin, there's no evil, there's only peace, there's only joy, there's only contentment, there is only shalom. The way that Cornelius Plattinger describes shalom is universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, joyful wonder as God opens up the doors and welcomes his people to come in and to enjoy him. That is act one. And so when you start way up there, then you can feel the weight of the fall. And so we're going to call today's sermon act two, the fall. And before we jump in, I want us to go ahead and pray. God, we come to you this morning and I just pray that you would help us to slow down, that we wouldn't gloss over the details, but we would see, see Satan tempting See Adam and Eve listening. See Adam and Eve turning away from God and see God pursue them. And then as we're seeing Adam and Eve, we want to also see ourselves. We have fallen so far short of the glory of God. And yet, you meet us there. 
Would you meet us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, scene one. Scene one is the tempter. Just real quick. Verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so if you're picturing the the drama, right, you see the serpent come on stage. And we're not sure exactly what this serpent is. Uh, if, it is a, if it is a snake, I'm, I'm creeping out. You know, I hate snakes. Uh, but actually, the Hebrew word just means reptile. And so we're not sure exactly what type of reptile it was, but the serpent is described in a unique way. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And that word crafty can also be translated cunning, subtle, or shrewd. And it can be actually a positive or it can be used positively or negatively depending on the context. Um, And of course, also in this section, it says that the Lord God had made this animal. So I want you to hear this too. This serpent at the time, it it is a good animal. Everything that God made is good. But the storyteller Moses, of course, is letting us on to something more that's going on as we see this drama unfold on stage. This is no ordinary serpent. Um, while Moses, uh, uh, or excuse me, while Adam and Eve don't understand this, we, we do. And so we're going to pause real quick. Moses doesn't give us much of the details of who this serpent is, but I think it's helpful for us to kind of take a step back and say, well, well, who is this? What's going on? What's going on behind the scenes? And so the fullest answer is actually given in Revelation um, 12, verse 9. So we're going to look there. It says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil. Devil just means slanderer, someone who, who accuses or speaks against God. It says he's called also Satan, which means adversary. He's an opponent. He's an enemy. He's also the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus calls him the father of lies. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What exactly is that talking about? Well, we looked at Jude not too long ago, and in Jude verse 6, we we get a little bit more of what happened. What was the origin of these angels being thrown down? Jude verse 6 says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. So it appears that once there was this group of angels, including Satan, and as Jude says, they did not stay within their own position of authority. So they had a desire for more power, for more authority than they were appointed to by God and under God. And rather than being satisfied with God as their supreme joy and entrusting themselves to his rule and reign, they set out on their own course. They said, I want to live life on my terms. I want to exalt myself above God. And so God threw them down. Does that sound familiar? That is the same exact tactic that Satan uses for us, that he tempts us towards. He wants us to understand, he wants us to, to, to really go against God, to exert our own authority above his And in response, we're going to see what happens when we do that. I just want to tell you before we jump into the drama a little bit more how grateful I am for God's word because we see a lot of evil in the world, don't we? And the Bible gives us categories for how to understand it. We have the evil one who subtly and supernaturally is seeking to destroy the apex of God's creation, 
man and woman. And we are tempted to do one of two things when this happens. One is we can minimize God's power, or excuse me, minimize Satan's power, where, where we, we just say, oh, he's not that big of a deal. If you remember the usual suspects, Kevin Spacey, great movie. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And so I would say that by and large, that's the way our culture is. We're just like, oh yeah, he's just, he's just that dude with some horns or whatever. He's no big deal. No, he is a roaring lion seeking to devour all those who would put their trust in Jesus Christ. On the flip side, though, some of us, we can give Satan too much credit as if he is in charge or as if maybe there's like good and evil and they were equal and opposite reactions. That is not true either. No, Satan is a being created under the authority of God. He's no match for the power, the majesty, and the glory of God. And so we need to have a proper balance. We shouldn't, on the one hand, think that that, that somehow we're, we're never above Satan's ploys. But on the other hand, we should never think that we're unable to withstand the fiery darts of the enemy. So what about you? Where do you see Satan? All, as you're walking him, watching him go on the stage here, or as he's coming to you in your life, where do you see him? Are you paying attention? Do you see how he's trying to trick and to deceive and even to destroy you and me? Or... Are you just assuming that you're above him, that he can't touch you? Well, as we're about to see in this drama, Eve assumes that Satan is no big deal. But we're, of course, as we're watching this, we're going to be like, no, don't talk to him, Eve, run away. That's not what, that's not what Eve does. And oftentimes, if we're honest, that's not what we do either. And so as we're watching Adam and Eve interact with the enemy, we also need to see ourselves in the middle of that story as well. So moving on, scene two, the temptation. End of verse one, it says, He said to the woman, meaning the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so Satan kind of moves on the stage. He moves towards Eve. And then he asks, Not a... Not a, he doesn't give some sort of frontal assault. He just asks a simple, subtle question. Has God really said? But the way it's written in the Hebrew, it also can be understood. Indeed, to think that God said. It's like Satan has heard a rumor about God, and he's just, hey, I heard this about God. What do you think? And then he begins to exaggerate God's command. What does he say? He says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What's he doing? He's saying, I think God's a little harsh. I think he's restrictive. I think he doesn't want you to have any fun. Did God really say, you can't enjoy life, that you can't have meaningful relationships, that you can't go on a vacation, that you can't just enjoy the good life. See what he's doing? He's asking questions. He's beginning to change the way that Eve 
possibly thinks about God. Temptation focuses on what we don't have to make us ungrateful for what we do have. Okay? You guys, uh, you kids who are out there, and I'm sure me, when I was a kid, I did this a lot as well. You know, your parents say no to something. They say, don't do that. And then you immediately say, you never let me have any fun. Kids ever do that? No, not me. Him over there, but not me. No, we all do that sometimes, right? Our temptation is to think that just because there is a no over here, that that means that somehow there's a no everywhere. But this seed of doubt, it begins to be planted inside of Eve's heart and mind. And so look at how she responds in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's interesting. Go back to Genesis 2, verse 16. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Do you see the two words that Eve left out? You may surely or you may freely eat of every tree. She leaves those two words out. She's already beginning to think, well, God's leaving me out. He doesn't want me to be happy. And then on top of that, look how she exaggerates. She not only minimizes God's provision, but then she exaggerates God's prohibition. Look at what she says next. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. See what's happening now? God's restrictive. He's keeping me from things. Satan's beginning to capture Eve's affections and fixating her attention on the one thing that God says no to and to lose sight of all of the things that God has freely said, eat, enjoy. And that's what temptation does. We make small what God has given, and then we make big what God has held back. Our temptation is to minimize the goodness of God. So that's how he starts the conversation. He continues it on. He moves from a subtle question to outright lies. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Lie number one, you can't trust what God says. You won't surely die. You can't believe what God says. Sin's not that big of a deal. Penalty of sin's not death. He's just kidding. It's not that big of a deal when you lie to your spouse. It's not that big of a deal when you cheat on a test. It's not that big of a deal when you steal from a friend or you speak ill words to your siblings. It's not that big of a deal when you talk to a coworker and flirt with them at work. It's not that big of a deal when you Look at something inappropriate on the internet. See what's going on? Minimizing the seriousness of sin. 
That's lie number one. You can't trust what God says. Number two, verse five, you can't trust how God rules. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's what's Satan doing here? He's luring in Adam and Eve even more so. Your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want to share his glory with you. He's a glory hog. He's holding back from you the good life that you can enjoy on your own. The crazy thing is, in reality, they are already like God. They fail to enjoy everything that God has made. They've been able to commune with God. They've been able to demonstrate the character of God and the works of God. They are like God. But Satan is right. There is one thing that they don't know. They do not know evil. They know everything about good. They know all that there is to experience from a gracious, kind God. Satan's favorite ploy to run against us is to undermine our belief in God's wise and good rule over us. If God really is good, then why is he keeping you from eating this one tree in the garden of good, the garden, this tree of knowledge of good and evil? Don't you see how good its fruit is? If God is really good, then why would he make your life so hard? If God is really good, then why would he give you these desires that you can't act on right now or in this way? If God is really good, then why has he given you that spouse? You should turn away from that spouse. Just do something different. Sin comes so quickly when we buy into these lies, and that's what we're about to see in this drama as it's unfolding. Often, Satan tempts us towards things that are bad, but then also he tempts us towards things that are good, but in a way that is bad or in a time that is bad. And so there's lots of desires that God has placed into our hearts that he says, not yet to, or not in this way. But boy, Satan says, no, God doesn't want you to be happy. You can't trust in him. You can't trust in his wise rule. His rule is not wise. So I want to ask you a question. Where are you tempted to take the bait? Where are you tempted to believe in the lies of the enemy? Where are you tempted to believe that God's word is not what it says? Where are you tempted to believe that God's rule is not wise and good? I encourage you even this afternoon just to write some of those lies down from the enemy. Write them down and then consider where that giving into that lie leads. Because I guarantee you, if you've started chomping on that bait, the hook is about to get you. This whole conversation between Eve and And the serpent is what John Owen calls entering into temptation. I want to read just a little section to you. He says, when we suffer, or it can also be translated allow or permit, when we allow or permit a temptation to enter into us, then we enter into temptation. While it knocks at the door, we are at liberty. But when any temptation comes in and parlays, or that's another word for discusses, especially with an enemy, 
When it comes in and parlays with the heart, reasons with the mind, entices and allures the affections, be it a long or a short time, do it thus insensibly and imperceptibly, or do the soul take notice of it? We enter into temptation. In other words, sometimes you're aware of this temptation, sometimes you're not, because maybe you've just given the guest key into the living room. That's the idea here is that there's a temptation that's knocking at the door or Satan is knocking at the door. By the way, because we are post-fall, we don't even need Satan to give into temptation. We've got so much sinful desires in our own hearts. And so what happens is the temptation knocks at the door. Satan's knocking at the door. And then as soon as you open that door up, hey, why don't we have a conversation? I just want to think about it. I just want to ponder it. I just want to consider it. It's like the Turkish delight. I just want to look at it, you know? Allow ourselves to feel drawn in. As one author puts it, sometimes we may even give our temptation, our particular temptation or, or idol, idol that we give into or, or Satan himself, so we kind of just give the guest key. And we're like, yeah, come and go as you please. When we do that, we are very much on our way to giving in. And so, where are you tempted to have a conversation with the enemy? Where might you even be having a conversation with the enemy right now? What lies are you tempted to listen to and to believe in? What doubts are creeping in? Where is your heart being pulled? So we find Eve in this temptation. And Adam, as we'll see, as we saw last week, he's right there watching every step of the way. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's interesting. The account of sin is very short. Just four simple verbs. She saw. She took, she ate, and then she gave. And then same pattern with Adam, right? He saw, he took, he ate. And as we know, he gives us that sinful nature that we have as well. Uh, Once temptation is conquered, Eve and Adam's heart and mind all that remains is their will to act. And that comes very quickly. Look at this quote from Ashley Knoll. She says, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The will is captive to what the heart wants. This is really important. This is not just an act of obedience. This is a love being transferred from pointing towards God to now our love, leaves love, Adam's love is moving towards something else. They loved something more than God. Michael Reeves puts it this way. He says, what went wrong? It was not that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created as lovers in the image of God, and they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned inward. When the apostle Paul writes of sinners, he describes them as lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Lovers we remain, but twisted Our love is misdirected and perverted. Created to love, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. 
So for Eve, she loved autonomy. She loved curiosity. She loved the good of the fruit. She loved this delight to the eyes. She loved wanting to be wise and to know good and evil. And she loved that more than God. Adam, same way. We looked at this last week. Adam was committing a sin just as Eve was as well. He loved passivity. He loved ease. He loved comfort. He loved pleasure more than he loved God and loved his wife to step in to protect her and to provide for her and to say, let's get out of here. What is it that you are tempted to love more than God? What idols do you trust in and obey more than God? As we move on to scene three, I think it's really important to see this. When we see verse six and then following, where is Satan? Nowhere. He's gone. He has moved off stage. Adam and Eve are front and middle stage. Satan is gone. And that is exactly what he does to us. He plants that seed of doubt and then he goes. Same thing with our idols. Our idols plant those, plant those promises to deliver us, to rescue us. And then as soon as we give in to them, then those idols enslave us and they keep us. And they give us no rescue. They run away. Temptation promises so much and hides the consequences. And yet we give in, don't we, so oftentimes. And that is what is so tragic. We exchange the glory of God for these little idols. Scene three, the tragedy. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's going on? They have exchanged innocence and intimacy with God and with one another for guilt and shame. Guilt has to do with what we do. It's an act of disobedience, okay? It's, it's something we do against a holy and righteous God. Shame has to do with who we are. And so we see their response. They, they want to do something. They want to try to make things right. And so all they, need to do to, all they know to do is just to, oh, if I sow fig leaves, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll somehow make things right. I'll be able to cover over my nakedness. And that's often what shame does. Is it, it makes us feel, instead of naked and unashamed, now we are naked and ashamed. And all we want to do is just cover ourselves up. So we sin, and then we are a sinner. We steal, and now we are a thief. We lie, and now we are a liar. We do something bad, and now we say, I am a bad person. That's how guilt and shame work together. This is the way shame is defined by Ed Welch. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. See, guilt is in the courtroom. We sin against a holy and righteous judge. But shame is dealt with in community. 
Now we feel ashamed. We don't want anyone to look at us. We don't want anyone to see us. We feel ashamed. We feel humiliated. We feel exposed. And all we want to do is just to cover ourselves up. That is what is going on in the garden. And you and I both know that's what happens to us when we sin. So they knew the beauty of good, that it brings with it being known, being loved, being vulnerable, and being okay. But now they know the horror of evil and all that it brings, shame, isolation, loneliness, brokenness, sadness. It's interesting. Verse 8, look at God. Look how he goes to Adam and Eve. This is where God comes on the stage. By the way, you can kind of picture it on the stage. Adam and Eve were front and center, and now they're moving back. They're cowering in fear. They're moving backstage. They don't want to be around anyone. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I want you to see the difference here, the way that God has described the first part of this story and now this part. Before, when Eve was talking to, Ad, or excuse me, Eve was talking to the serpent, it was just God, that distant God. Yeah, that God that really doesn't care for you. That God just doesn't really want what's best for you. But now look, the Lord God moves towards Adam and Eve. The Lord God speaks kindly. The presence of God is filled with grace, with love, with affection, with goodness towards his creation. You see, this is the pattern that's been going on time and time and time again. The cool of the day, they would have a conversation with God. And I want you to think about this. We oftentimes think about how Adam and Eve are responding to God. But think about God and how he is looking at Adam and Eve. These are the people that have been made in his image, made for him to delight in and to pour out his grace upon, made to have a communion with him, Think about it as he watches Adam and Eve say yes to this serpent and say no to him. Turn their backs on him. Say, I don't want you. How painful that must have been for God to watch take place. And yet, do you see what God does? He still pursues. He asks questions. He doesn't beat them upside the head. He draws out their heart. Where are you? As Adam and Eve pull away, God moves towards them. But as we see the progression of sin, guilt, then shame, and then fear. Adam does come out from backstage, but he's still really afraid. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. That sound, by the way, is a good sound. It's a joyful sound. It's a wonderful sound. But in this place, all he can hear is condemnation. And he wanted to hide. He said, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sin exchanges the peaceful fruit of righteousness for the fear 
of discipline and correction. That's from Hebrews 12. But God doesn't stop with asking one question. He asks him more questions. He doesn't demand. He just draws out Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Here's an invitation for Adam to come clean. As we see, sin just keeps spiraling down. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Instead of Adam taking responsibility, confessing his sin, he blame shifts. It was your fault, God, and it was that woman's fault. Men, don't ever call your wife the woman, okay? Call, call him wife, okay? Never good when you call your, call your wife the woman, He blames. He doesn't take responsibility. And Eve does the same. Verse 13. Lord said to the woman, another question. What is this that you have done? Woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Blames the serpent. Doesn't take responsibility. So instead of stopping sin dead in its tracks, instead of saying, I'm sorry, I messed up. Please forgive me. They move away from God. They blame one another. They blame God. They shake their fist at God, and they say, it's your fault. Instead of experiencing joy and freedom and grace and mercy and forgiveness that comes from a God who is those things towards his people, I say, I don't want to talk to you about it, God. It's your fault. We're going to get more into this tragedy next week, really the curse of sin. Um, But I don't want to stop here because this is a lot of times is where we stop. We get stuck in our sin and we don't move forward to look at the next act in the story. Scene four, or really we could call it act three, is the triumph. Verse 15 hints at it. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And when God is speaking to the serpent, this is, this is foreshadowing the coming king, the coming savior, the second Adam who will triumph over Satan, sin, and death. I want to just really quickly look at this. Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. The setting is this. Jesus has just been baptized The Father has just spoken good words over Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit rests on Jesus to experience that love of the Father. And then verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And when they were ended, he was hungry. He ate nothing during those days. Skip that part. So here's the idea. The context is instead of a beautiful garden with everything to enjoy, Jesus is in the wilderness with barrenness, with sand, with heat, with nothing to enjoy. Instead of being with another person, Adam was with Eve. Eve was with Adam. Jesus is by himself, alone. But unlike Adam and Eve, who couldn't even say no once 
to the temptation. Jesus says no three times. We're not going to read through this whole text, but where Adam failed, the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. He, he first was tempted with those things that are good for food. That's why Eve, Eve was sought. She said, this is good for food. He was tempted with physical delight. And he said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Goes on, he's tempted again, this time to what, she, what he sees, just like Eve was tempted towards what she saw. He sees the kingdoms, all of the kingdoms. He said, all of this stuff is for you, Jesus. Personal gain is for you. And Jesus says, no, there's only one kingdom. Again, Jesus is tempted to, to make one wise. Another temptation, the way Eve said yes to the way that the serpent wanted her to be wise. Jesus says, no, there is only one wise way. I'm not going to jump off this temple and tempt the angels to rescue me. That's not the wise way. The wise way is to follow God wherever he leads. Every single temptation that Adam and Eve said yes to, Jesus says no to. He is the second Adam, the better Adam, who says no time and time and time and time and time again. Here's what's really interesting. Jesus was supported by the God's approval, God the Father's approval. That is the same thing that we have. Our core identity is not sinner. Our core identity is son, daughter of God. You are the beloved children with whom God is well pleased through Jesus Christ. You are led by the Spirit. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away so that I give my spirit to you so that you can obey me. The very words of God are planted inside your soul so that you can obey me. And then that's the third thing. We are equipped with God's word. We have God's word right here so that we won't give in to the lies of the enemy. Most importantly, Jesus saw the love of God as more important than anything else. Thomas Chalmers, he says that there is this expulsive power of a new affection that pushes out the old affection. He says that it's like our hearts have an object of desire right in front of us. And the only way we're going to say no to this is if we replace it with a more beautiful object of desire. Thomas says, that is Jesus Christ. The love of God is the only thing that will replace all those other desires that you have. It's the only thing that will obliterate those other idols that you so often say yes to. But here's what's even more amazing. Jesus doesn't just provide us an example. He is our Savior and our Lord. Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at, actually, the end of chapter 4, or where we read, says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. An opportune time was certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was sweating drops of blood. He was just so overwhelmed with all of the weight of sin that he was about to carry. And you can hear, even though it's not read in the scriptures, you can hear Satan almost whispering to Jesus, Jesus, it's not worth it. Those people, they're not worth it. Let them bear the weight of their own sin rather than you. But this time, 
Jesus does not say yes to the, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead, he says yes to a totally different tree, a barren tree on Golgotha's hill. He says, where Adam failed and where all of my people have failed, I will not fail and I will die for the sins of the world so that they can be found in me, pure and spotless and without blemish. So today, if you are overwhelmed with guilt because of your sin, see Jesus nailed to the cross, bearing the weight of your sin. If you are overwhelmed with shame because of something you've done or something that's been done to you and you feel like that's your core identity, Jesus says, no, I've given you another identity. You are a new creation. You are a child of God. You are one who is loved by me from the foundation of the world. Or if you are just entering into conversation with the enemy, run away from the enemy and run to the object of your desires, a greater love. Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 17, we'll conclude with this. It says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, that's us, much more will we who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is, is the end of the story. And one day we will see act four, Jesus coming back for his bride, the church. And we can't wait till that day. Let's pray.